This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, listeners, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 57, entitled, What Does Son of God Mean in Mark? Part 2. As always, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I am your host. In our last episode, we began to explore what the Gospel of Mark means when he calls Jesus the Son of God. It was demonstrated that the baptism of Jesus, the vision of the transfiguration, and the confessions at his crucifixion all pointed to the Son of God being both a royal kingly figure and one who was rejected and killed as God's specially authorized agent. This episode seeks to continue to explore how Mark defines and understands the title Son of God in regard to Jesus. Does Son of God imply one who is divine, maybe being Yahweh himself? Does the title Son of God prove that the Son literally preexisted his birth in heaven? What actually does Mark teach on these points? This episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast will look at the remaining evidence within Mark. We will start with the testimonies of the demons, namely the unclean spirits who seem to know that Jesus is the Son of God. From there, we will move to look at Jesus as Son of God in the critically important parable of the wicked tenants. Finally, we will look at what Jesus says about himself as Son in the Olivet Discourse of Mark chapter 13. This will hopefully give a complete picture of what Mark means when he calls Jesus the important title, Son of God. So let's begin our study. Our first point today is looking at Son of God described by the unclean spirits and the demons. We've got a few passages here where the unclean spirits have an interchange with Jesus. The first one is going to be in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 23. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. That's Mark chapter 1, verses 23 through 27. So what sort of data can we gather from this interaction between Jesus and the unclean spirit? Well, the first thing that I see is that this passage comes immediately after a declaration of Jesus' authority. And this current passage concludes with a similar point. It would appear, therefore, that Mark wanted his readers to regard the interaction between Jesus and the unclean spirit as a demonstration of Jesus' authority. We can also note that the unclean spirit addresses Jesus as, quote, the Holy One of God, end quote. It could also be translated as God's Holy One. Are there any clues that can be gathered to decipher what he means by the adjective holy? The closest Old Testament allusions 
appear to be in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 16 and verse 10, where the Davidic psalmist has faith that God will not allow his Holy One to see the pit or to undergo decay. Mark has already made a significant point within the narrative about Jesus' holiness. The Greek adjective aios, which is translated as holy, was already used back in Mark chapter 1 and verse 8 to describe the spirit with which Jesus will baptize others. The same Holy Spirit was received by Jesus at his baptism in Mark chapter 1 and verse 12, the same baptism where Jesus was declared by God to be the royal and messianic Son of God. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So, the fact that Jesus is called the Holy One of God is an indication that he has received God's Holy Spirit. Why then did Jesus possess authority over the unclean spirit? The text seems to suggest that it is because Jesus has been empowered with God's Holy Spirit at his baptism, an event which authorized Jesus as the royal Son of God. Surely, the royal king, anointed with the Holy Spirit, bears enough authority to perform the exorcism portrayed in our current passage. It is also noteworthy to point out that the unclean spirit identifies Jesus with a human name, calling him Jesus of Nazareth. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 15, a similar episode has a spirit identifying both Jesus and Paul as agents of God's authoritative exorcisms. So one could not conclude that the unclean spirit in our present passage knew Jesus' identity from some earlier time prior to Jesus' birth. Rather, it is Jesus precisely as a human being, using Jesus' human name, functioning as a spiritually empowered agent of God, that the unclean spirit identifies Jesus. The next passage we'll look at in regard to Jesus having an interchange with the unclean spirits is Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 10, which says, For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. That's Mark chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. In this example of the unclean spirits and their interaction with Jesus, the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God is shouted out loud. In other words, the unclean spirits know what the reader already knows from the baptism of Jesus. It is noteworthy, therefore, to point out that Jesus attempts to quiet this declaration of his identity. Jesus silences them, with the verb epitimao, the very same verb that is used against the disciples after Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ in Mark chapter 8, which reads, And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's Mark chapter 8, verses 29 through 31. The parallel between the two accounts helps to understand the so-called messianic secret 
that is prevalent throughout Mark's gospel. Both in chapter 3 in our current passage and in chapter 8 where Jesus dialogues with Peter and the disciples, Jesus warns those who acknowledge him as the royal son of God, the Christ, to not speak of it. But in both cases, those who made the confessions only knew of the royal and authoritative aspects of the Son of God. They did not understand the Markan Christological emphasis that the Son of God would be rejected and killed. This is why Peter's confession is immediately followed up with an expansion of the Christological vocation to be a suffering and rejected figure. That's extremely important to understand in light of Mark's Christology. It should also be pointed out that the unclean spirits fall down before Jesus in an act that resembles worship and prostration. This need not prove that Jesus is Yahweh, since the royal human king was often worshipped within the Hebrew Bible. I'll recall verses we looked at when we studied the ideal Israelite king, such as 1 Chronicles 29.20, Psalm 2 and verse 12, and Psalm 45 and verse 11. All of those passages demonstrate that worship was rightfully given to a human being who was the Israelite king. Acts of worship towards the royal son of God fit nicely into Mark's definition of Jesus' identity rather than radically redefining it. Our next passage where Jesus has an interchange with the unclean spirits is in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 2. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. No one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gnashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. That is Mark chapter 5, verses 2 through 8. Much of the same that we've already demonstrated in our previous passage is in our current passage here in Mark chapter 5. Another unclean spirit, identifying Jesus as the Son of God, slightly modified here, by the way, as the Son of the Most High God. There is an understanding that there is a relationship between Jesus the Son and the Most High God, without ever confusing the two of them. Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. Jesus is not identified as the Most High God. Again, the unclean spirit bows down before Jesus. We've already addressed this as an appropriate action towards a royal human king. Of interest is the later conclusion of this episode, where Jesus refuses the request of the exercised man to accompany him, telling him instead, quote, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. That's Mark chapter 5 and verse 19. What is Mark trying to say with the title Lord used of Jesus, the previously described Son of the Most High God? The term is actually ambiguous in this context, possibly referring to the Lord God working in and through Jesus, 
or to Jesus himself as a Lord distinct from the Most High God. I tend to think that it is the latter, since Mark makes a major point of recording Jesus' citation of Psalm 110.1, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet, in Mark chapter 12 and verse 36. In other words, Jesus cites Psalm 110.1 to validate his claims for being a Lord distinct from Yahweh. Since the distinct Lord in Psalm 1 is enthroned at the right hand of Yahweh, this fits nicely into our understanding of Son of God as a royal title given to a human being, a human king acting as God's special agent. Our second point today is looking at Son of God in the parable of the wicked tenants. This is a very important parable in Mark, starting in chapter 12 and verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully and he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. That's Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. This parable is another way in which Jesus redefined the meaning of Son of God. The owner of the vineyard, functioning as God, sent his son, who was ultimately rejected and killed. So this fits into Mark's redefining of the royal and kingly Son of God as a figure that is to be rejected and killed for God's salvific purposes. Now some might look at the fact that the Son is sent in this parable and assume that this sending is ascending from a pre-existent state in heaven. In addition to the fact this would be nonsensical in a story about a human son belonging to the vineyard's owner. The parable also notes that these slaves were also sent, using the same Greek verb for both the slaves and the sent son. So the act of sending cannot be indicative of any literal pre-existence of the Son of God. The act of sending implies an authoritative commissioning by the owner of the vineyard. Since the sent son is rejected and killed, this indicates the son's mortality, his susceptibility to death. Mortality is never a description used of Yahweh, either in the Old Testament or in intertestamental Judaism. So it would be difficult for readers to make the jump from Jesus as Son of God, as it has been defined throughout Mark, to Jesus as the divine Yahweh from this passage. 
Our third point today is looking at Son of God in ignorance of the date of his return. This is an extremely important passage for the Christology of Mark's Gospel. This is in Mark chapter 13 and verse 32, where Jesus himself says, But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. That's Mark chapter 13, verse 32. This passage is one of the clearest passages in regard to the Son of God and his role vis-a-vis the Father. In regard to the day of the second coming, no one knows when it will be except the Father. The angels in heaven are not aware of this important fact, and neither is the Son, despite the Son's exalted role as the Father's special and empowered agent. What is even more noteworthy is the fact that Jesus himself utters the words of Mark 13.32, meaning Jesus himself admitted that he was not omniscient. He does not say that his humanity doesn't know, but his divinity side does, in fact, know, assuming some sort of later doctrine of the two natures that was formulated in church councils. No, Jesus says that the Father is the only person who knows this crucial point. There is no co-equality between the Father and the Son, nor is there any hint of dual natures within Jesus. Jesus is the Son who, while occupying the special role as the one returning in power and glory, nevertheless is subordinate to the Father, who is the only one in the universe who knows when this event will take place. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the Gospel of Mark defines Jesus as the Son of God in very particular ways. Son of God is the royal and messianic king, the anointed Messiah. This figure bears authority, both as the king of the Jews and one specially anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. The unclean spirits acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, namely, as a holy person distinct from the Most High God. They demonstrate acts of worship towards Jesus in accordance with the prostration due to the royal human king. Jesus silences their Christological confessions, hoping to personally further define Son of God as a rejected and killed figure in accordance with God's plans for his specially empowered and authorized agent. The important parable of the wicked tenants further emphasizes the distinction between Jesus, the Son of God, and Yahweh. The Son of God is sent, like many of the formerly sent slaves, meaning he was commissioned with a special task. The Son was rejected and killed precisely as the Son of God, a mortal. Lastly, this mortal Son of God admits his ignorance to the day and hour of the second coming, teaching instead that the Father is the only person who knows this critical fact. In sum, Son of God in Mark is a reference to the anointed King of the Kingdom who is a human being rejected and killed in accordance to God's plan of salvation. Mark did not regard Jesus, the Son of God, as the second member of the Trinity, nor as a pre-existent person alongside God in heaven prior to his birth. If you enjoyed the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider donating to us. 
You can check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much for listening to us today. Look forward to sharing with you next week. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.